You're listening to the Trinity Podcast. We are a multi-site church in the Chicago area whose mission is to help you look, live, and love more like Jesus. Throughout our study of Proverbs, we have seen how wisdom is something that helps us navigate our world well. But it does more than this. Godly wisdom ultimately prepares us for the world that Christ is building, which He will bring to its fullness. A truly wise person knows that though there is much in this world to be admired, the things of this world will ultimately not satisfy. We need more than this. And that is where Jesus directs us. He shows us a greater kind of wisdom, one which points us to a greater kingdom in which peace, justice, and righteousness flow and is received not by the great ones of this world, but the humble, meek, and poor in spirit. Join us as we wrap up our first series of the new year, Wisdom for Life. It is a pleasure to be gathering with you in this, our final weekend in this series that we have been calling Wisdom for Life. Uh, One of the things that really prompted us to, to do this series together as a church is the fact that we live in a world that is constantly changing. Uh, And it's doing so at a faster and faster pace. And the result is often that we feel like we just have whiplash in terms of knowing what to do, how to go about doing it, and so forth. And what we've realized, I think, as a society is that we need something more than knowledge. We need something more than more information. We actually can't handle the information that we already have. It, It comes at us at such a rapid pace. What we really need, what we long for and desire is wisdom. Because wisdom is what allows us to navigate our world well, to take what we know and to apply it in action in a way that actually transforms our lives and the lives of those around us. And what we've seen, just as a way of recapping so far, is what what we've seen is that it's by wisdom that God created the heavens and the earth. So that if we are to truly understand our world and the ways of it, we need wisdom in order to be able to to live rightly and to live well. That wisdom's desire is to lead us on paths that lead to life rather than death. And we've looked at how the difference between wisdom and foolishness, between really understanding the world or simply selling out for quick fixes. And so to help us, we've really been diving into the book of Proverbs, because Proverbs is often considered by many people just like the the quintessential book on wisdom. It deals with so many different facets of life, as we've already seen. What do we do with work and wealth? What do we do with our relationships? How do we understand our inner lives and what it means to be formed and shaped in our character? But Proverbs is not the only place where wisdom is found in Scripture. It stands as one of many wisdom books, alongside books like Ecclesiastes and Job, these books which address some of the more difficult challenges of life, things like suffering and brokenness. But even there, what we find is that that doesn't cover all that the Bible has to say when it comes to wisdom. That in fact, if you go to the Psalms, you find wisdom spoken about. That if you read the stories of the kings, you find wisdom addressed. But perhaps no other place in the whole of scriptures is wisdom put on display at its finest than in Jesus' own Sermon on the Mount. Of all of Jesus' teachings, the Sermon on the Mount is by far his most influential 
It's been a, a, a set of teachings that people have looked to even outside the Christian tradition down through the centuries because it's there that we find a kind of wisdom that can't be found anywhere else. In fact, so profound and so beautiful is the Sermon on the Mount that even leading figures like Mahatma Gandhi have pointed to it as a source of inspiration. Gandhi talked about his own wrestling with the Christian Bible, and he admitted that the, the Old Testament was kind of hard for him to understand. But then he writes this, he says, the New Testament produced a different impression, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which went straight to my heart. It is that sermon which has endeared Jesus to me. In fact, Gandhi's entire nonviolent movement, which led to the freedom of, of his own country of India, was inspired and directed by the ethics that were found in the Sermon on the Mount. Likewise, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. looked to the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount to inspire and to shape the, his civil rights movement. It was the foundation upon which that entire movement was built. Why? Well, it's because when you take a closer look at the Sermon on the Mount, what you find is you find that it paints a picture not of our world as it currently is, but it paints a picture of the world as Jesus desires to remake it. That when you really attend to the words of the Sermon on the Mount, what we see is Jesus introducing the kingdom of God to us, a kingdom in which forgiveness and mercy and grace reign, a kingdom in which the broken things of the world are mended and where the wisdom of the world is turned on its head by the wisdom of God. A totally different way of living a life. A beautiful, powerful, and profound way of living life. One which has the power to reshape our communities and our workplaces and our finances and, yes, even our relationships. This is part of the reason why these couple of chapters in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, are ones that people return to over and over and over again. In fact, it would be very, very easy to do an entire series just on the Sermon on the Mount. And yes, that was a trailer for what's coming maybe next year. Okay. It's a beautiful sermon. It's one that inspires and, and, and has shaped lives down through the centuries. But, but the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is, what really makes the difference between a kingdom person and everybody else? If the Sermon on the Mount is, is kind of Jesus' rules for life for kingdom people, what ultimately sets them apart as different? And for that, we actually have to go to the, to the end of the sermon and then the beginning of the sermon. I don't know if you're like me. I actually love like movies where it starts at the ending. And then you like go back and you see all the events that led up to it. Like I love movies like, like Memento and Citizen Kane because it starts at the end, but then you go back and you kind of see what all led up to that. That's exactly what I want to do with the Sermon on the Mount. I want to start at the end. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open up with me uh, to Matthew chapter 7. This is actually the very last words that Jesus speaks before he concludes his message. And I'm specifically looking at Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. This is what Jesus says. 
After giving all of his teachings, after spending the last, you know, three chapters talking about life in the kingdom of God, he says this. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their own teachers of the law. You see, right here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, here's the difference between kingdom people and everybody else. Here's the difference between wise people and foolish people. He says they're like two people building their houses. One builds on a strong foundation of the rock, another builds their house on the sand, and then when the storms of life come, the person who built on sand is swept away, while the one who's built on the rock remains. Now, what's the difference between those two people? Is it just that the one hears the words of God and the other doesn't? No. Notice carefully, if you take a, a close look at the story, both of them hear Jesus' words. It's not like one had all the information and the other didn't. They both receive the words of Jesus, but only one of them actually puts them into practice. Only one of them says, I'm going to take those words and I'm going to build my life on those words. See, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, my wisdom is given to you that you might withstand the storms of life. I give them to you as a gift, but you only receive the benefit when you actually put them into play, when you actually build your life upon them. And what I love is that this invitation to learn from the master is not simply given to the haves, but also to the have-nots. It's not just given to the haves, but also to the have-nots. And this is why we have to go to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, because it's there at the beginning that Jesus says who this is for. We find it in this section that has uh, popularly come to be known as the Beatitudes, it's this list of blessings. And I want you to listen carefully. This was read a moment ago, but it bears repeating. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, who were before you. Now, this section of Scripture has been read, like I've said, down through the centuries, but it's often misunderstood. People tend to read the Beatitudes as, oh, well, this is what we all have to become. 
This is something that we all have to do if we're going to really inherit the kingdom of God. But to read it that way is actually to miss the context. Context is very important when you read anything. It helps you to really understand uh, why this person is saying what they're saying. And one of the things that's worth noting is what happened right before Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount. See, what happens in the chapters leading up to the Sermon on the Mount is that we find Jesus ministering to the least and to the lost. He's healing those who are afflicted by many different kinds of diseases. He's casting out demons. He's calling tax collectors to be his disciples. He's inviting sinners to sit at his table. And it's these crowds that have been following him. And when Jesus sits down to begin his sermon, probably the greatest exposition on what the kingdom of heaven is all about, he starts by addressing the crowd and essentially saying, what I'm about to say is for you. It's for the overlooked and the lost. It's for the outcast and those who have not been welcomed in. Everything that I'm about to teach you, I give to you whom the rest of the teachers have overlooked. You who the rabbis have said, don't make the cut. You who are not welcome on the temple grounds or in the temple courts, my kingdom is for you. No wonder the people were amazed at the end of his teaching because he gave not just with authority, but with so much freedom and generosity. I love how Dallas Willard in his beautiful book, The Divine Conspiracy, talks about the Beatitudes. I want you to listen to what he says. In talking about Jesus' audience, he says, these are the people who don't know their Bible. They know not the law, as a later critic of Jesus' work said. They are mere lay people who at best can fill a pew or perhaps an offering plate. No one calls on them to lead a service or even to lead in prayer, and they might faint if anyone did. They are the first to tell you that they really can't make heads or tails of religion. They walk by us in the hundreds or the thousands every day. They would be the last to say that they have any claim whatsoever on God. The pages of the Gospels are cluttered with such people, and yet... These are the very ones who said, he touched me. The rule of the heavens comes down upon their lives through their contact with Jesus. And then they too are blessed, healed of body, mind, or spirit in the hand of God. Beautiful but kind of heady description of who the blessed are. And if you're sitting there being like, that totally went over my head, then maybe the words of Paul Simon are a little bit more apt. He says, blessed are the sat upon, spat upon, and ratted on. Great summary of the Beatitudes. You see, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is saying, my wisdom is given freely to those that the rest of the world has cast out. To those that the rest of the world would, co- would consider foolish, they're the ones who are invited in. I mean, just take a closer look at the list for a moment. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These aren't the spiritual titans. These aren't the morally upright. These aren't the biblical scholars. These are the people who who know very little about God. Blessed are those who mourn in a world that tells us we should pursue every happiness and run from every pain. Jesus says, no, those who mourn are to be comforted. Blessed are the meek. 
in a world that seems to glorify and enshrine power. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in a world that tells us that truth is simply a matter of perspective. Blessed are the merciful in a world that prefers judgment, condemnation, and cancellation. Blessed are the pure in heart in a culture that says there is no morality. Blessed are the peacemakers in a world that would value instead security. Blessed are the persecuted in a land that desires nothing more than inclusion and comfort. Jesus says, if you are like one of the have-nots, if you hear yourself reflected in those words, then my kingdom is for you. You are the very ones that I came to teach. You're the very ones that I came to give wisdom to. You're the very ones that I have invited, not just to be a part of my kingdom, but to become a part of my inner circle, to call me friend and not just Lord. The wisdom that I give is a wisdom that the world never would understand. And yet wisdom that the world so desperately needs. Because it's a kind of wisdom that will reshape this broken and dark place into a kingdom of light and grace and mercy, and it starts with you. Welcome. That's what the Beatitudes are all about. They are words given to those that the world has no place for. And what is so beautiful is that this idea became the MO for the early church. This is how they started and built their communities. I actually love what the Apostle Paul said to a church that had been planted in uh, the city of Corinth. Corinth was very similar to modern-day America. (laughs) It was a very prosperous place with lots of different ideas and philosophies swirling around. It was definitely a place that if you wanted to be one of the haves, that's where you would go. And yet Paul, in talking to this early church, encourages them to not forget who they are. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, look, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I love that Paul says, it's actually 
in choosing the weak things of this world that God shows us what true wisdom actually looks like. Because his wisdom is always bent toward grace. For God to truly show us not only who he is, but the kind of world that he desires to build, he says it starts with the outcasts. Why? So that everyone can know that they are welcome. It starts with the lowest of the low, so that the entire world can see that when I say I am the God of all people, they know it to be true. It starts with those who've been left out so that they can understand that when I say that my name is love, they know exactly what I'm talking about. For my love extends to the very corners of the earth, higher than the heavens, lower than the deepest seas. And it is by that that you will know my wisdom and my righteousness that what looks to the world like foolishness is not only wisdom, but life eternal. And, his, and Paul reminds him of this because he says that the same is true for you. When you build your house on the words of Jesus, when you live life according to his wisdom, at first glance, it's going to look nuts to the rest of the world. But Jesus says, but when you do that, you're building outposts of the kingdom. That when you do that, you're bringing foretastes of the, of the age to come here and now in the present. That not only will my wisdom enable you to withstand the storms of life in a way that the, the, the wisdom of the world can't possibly do, but it actually helps others to see just who God actually is and to understand that his invitation is theirs as well. And I love that he starts here because it's a reminder to us that walking with Jesus isn't about perfection. It's simply about taking another step. I love that he starts with these blesseds because it reminds us that even in moments when we fail to put his wisdom into practice, his grace can carry us. That even in moments when we fall short, which we will, the storms and the waters will not sweep over us. Because at the core, at the foundation of all that he teaches is the character and the nature of his heart. One which is gentle and lowly, which welcomes the least and the lost, which not only gives wisdom freely, but provides for life eternal. Paul put it beautifully when he says that God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, for the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. How do we know? Because he did it on the cross. In a moment when the world said, we've finally done him in, the tomb opens three days later and he walks out again into the daylight. And that resurrection life, that new and eternal hope, he says, is yours now and forever. So walk with me. Take my wisdom and put it into practice. For when you do so, you bring foretastes of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray.
Thank you so much for joining us on the Trinity Podcast. We hope this week's message encouraged you to consider the claims of Jesus in a new way, and we would love to have you join us for worship on the weekend. To find a location near you, visit www.tlc4u.org.